0: And welcome to our second series of the Researchers in Conversation podcast. I'm Caroline Norbury from Traxis, and each episode, I get to chat to a researcher about their career, research and experiences within their chosen field. Following the success of our first series, we have another collection of relaxed chats with impressive researchers from diverse areas, including comparative psychology and paediatric medicine. In this episode, I speak to Professor Marion Hetherington on her eating behaviour research. I do hope you find it as engaging and interesting as I did. Professor Marion Hetherington from the University of Leeds is with me today. She has been at Leeds for 12 years and currently holds the position of Thomas Ward Endowed Chair in Psychology as well as holding affiliate professor status at Pennsylvania State University since she was appointed in 2018. Marion is a biopsychologist with research interests in eating behaviour across the lifespan. She gained a first-class honours degree in psychology at the University of Glasgow and followed this up with a DPhil in experimental psychology at the University of Oxford. She also has a PGCE in primary education and a diploma in education. During her career, Marion has held posts as Professor of Biopsychology at the University of Liverpool and Caledonian Futures Chairs in Biopsychology at Glasgow Caledonian University. She has spent time in the US, a Fulbright Scholar at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore and a Fogarty International Fellow at NIH in Maryland. During her time at Leeds, Marion has established an infant lab with the Human Appetite Research Unit, where studies on infants investigate the development of food preferences, Expression of hunger and satiety cues, and how caregivers respond to these. At the other end of the age spectrum, she has explored loss of appetite in aging and managing malnutrition. Marion has published over 200 papers and has an h-index of 57. In addition to her substantial contribution to academia, Marion is a trustee of Give a Child a Hope charity that supports the education of a community in Uganda. Welcome, Marion, to the podcast. So uh, I'd like to start by asking how you started in psychology in the first place. Well,
1: I started in psychology uh, by mistake because I actually went to university at the University of Glasgow to study um, chemistry and um, biology. And so I did that. But I found that the courses were so complicated and so demanding that I thought I'd take something on the side because we have three subjects in the first year. I thought I should take something that was easy and something that would be interesting. So I thought, I've never heard of this psychology stuff, but it looks interesting, it looks easy. So I took that and actually after one year I was completely smitten by psychology. So I I changed my major from zoology to psychology. And I discovered that the reason that it was so interesting to me was that it was very scientific in terms of its methods, but everything that we were doing was very relatable. And that I understood very much how the science could inform impact in terms of translation to people's real lives. So to me, that was more interesting than the prospect of being a zookeeper at the end.
0: Excellent. Okay, it's funny how uh, these things can kind of fall into place. You don't know quite what's around the corner. Um, And you then went on from uh, psychology. Obviously, you did a PhD and you took some time out in the States. How did how did that happen? So when I was
1: at Oxford, um, uh, my supervisor, Barbara Rolls, who I'm in touch with still to this day, and she's very much my mentor, she's an American by birth. And when she was at Oxford, she was offered a job, um, at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. And she said to me, you know, you could come out for a year, um, uh, if you apply for a fellowship under the, uh, the Fogarty, uh, sorry, under the Fulbright Scholarship Program, not the Fogarty, that's NIH. Um, but the, the idea came that I would apply for this and spend my second year of my PhD out in the United States. Now I'd never been on an airplane at that point, and it was very exciting to think that my first journey on a plane would be from Glasgow to Baltimore. So I came home to my parents from, in Glasgow, and I, I I flew over to Baltimore. And my experience at Johns Hopkins was wonderful because Barbara was in the psychiatry department and we had access to patients with eating disorders. So my PhD was looking at eating behaviour in eating disorders. And there we were in a clinic um, with an inpatient setting so that we could do some research whilst the patients were being treated for the eating disorders. So my first experience of Baltimore was through the Johns Hopkins Hospital and it was because Barbara got her um, got her job there. And it was very exciting. My first plane (laughs) ride. And I asked the people I was sitting next to if I could go to the window because I'd never been on a plane. So (laughs) they moved to let me onto the the window seat.
0: That was super memorable. I guess the environment must have been quite different over there uh, in terms of, well, just... The general environment, but also within the academic institution, was that quite a different experience?
1: Well, yes. In Oxford, um, I was at Green College, and I had a, a experience of being around uh, medical students who c- come to Green College. And when I went to Johns Hopkins, it was entirely psychiatrists, so that was really interesting to be around clinicians. And the other thing, of course, in the United States was that, unlike Oxford, where I'd be going to the Bodley Library and taking you know hours to get a book or to request a photocopy, as it was in those days. <laughs> At Johns Hopkins, everything was just super organised, so efficient. If you asked for something to be done, it would be done immediately. And I just couldn't believe how amazingly efficient they were. And I realised that in the hospital setting, you really just have to be able to do everything Quickly for mm. clinical care, but also for the researchers. So I got very used to being in a very privileged environment. And then when I got my first academic academic job at the University of Dundee, I couldn't believe that to get a photocopy it would take a week. <laughs> so I had to go back to being you know UK standard of research.
0: So that oh, was a shock. I was going to say yeah, you, you had a taste of what what it could be like, and then uh, yes, so <laughs> a bit of a reversal was your. Your topic that you you obviously, within your PhD, you were talking about eating disorders specifically. How did you come to choose that particular area to study? So
1: the area of study of eating disorders appealed to me because uh, when I first started working with Barbara, she was very well known for looking at human ingestive behaviour, so looking at um, appetite and particularly sensory-specific satiety. And she'd been working in animal models as well as in humans. And when I came to work with her, I wanted to do something a little bit different from what she'd done before. And what appealed to me was the idea that there would be individuals uh, with anorexia nervosa, with bulimia nervosa, who were not responding to internal physiological cues of hunger appetite and satiety so their pathology as it were well psychological was also then expressed in very deep-rooted changes to their biology in particular metabolic rate changes um, changes to the way that their um, hormone release would be uh, in in response to foods so they had a very different response to food in terms of finding food very aversive And in bulimia nervosa, finding food so appealing that they would feel loss of control around those foods. So what what was interesting was to be able to investigate um, individuals for whom the normal biological drive to eat for survival was disrupted. Because in bulimia nervosa and in anorexia nervosa, there's evidence of of starvation because Mm. there's such long periods of deprivation. And what was curious to me was the way in which people with eating disorders could withstand these very long periods of, 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 de- of food deprivation, something that I would find very uncomfortable because I, I, I've i hardly ever skipped a meal in my life.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so the
1: idea that someone could skip not just a single meal but have a pattern of eating, which was so, in the case of anorexia nervosa, very precise, only certain foods, only certain times of the day, under certain circumstances, and in bulimia nervosa, trying to control food intake, but then having these really big binges where there was loss of control and feeling of not being able to stop eating. And we could connect that to the biology of starvation. So it was very interesting from a biological point of view, but also obviously from a psychological point of view.
0: Sure. And and they're quite different from how you described uh, anorexia and the bulimia responses. Do you know why one person might end up being anorexic rather than bulimia uh, through this you know because one is starving a lot of the time and one is starving but then compensating for that starving? Well interestingly enough
1: patients with anorexia nervosa will often transfer into bulimia nervosa as they actually gain weight uh, during treatment so there's evidence of patients with anorexia nervosa then developing bulimia nervosa or even b- developing the bulimic subtype of anorexia nervosa. So it used to be thought that there were very distinct disorders, mm-hmm. but actually there's a little bit of transfer in one direction, not in the other. So it's very rare for a patient with bulimia nervosa to then develop anorexia nervosa. But what's really consistent between the two illnesses is this drive to be a perfect ideal size. So in anorexia nervosa, the idea would be to be very slender, very slim, and there's always a magical number. So I want to be this weight. If only I was this weight, if I was 50 kilos, if I was 45 kilos, if I was 40 kilos, I would feel happier. In the United States, it would be the magic number of 99 pounds because it would be under 100 pounds. And so there's a kind of magical thinking around these numbers as being the perfect weight. And what patients with anorexia nervosa find is that even when they reach that target weight, they remain unhappy, they remain depressed, they remain very dissatisfied with their body image. So that's a fundamental and core issue within anorexia nervosa. There's also core issues around perfectionism, and this is what I said earlier, about this: eating only under certain circumstances, eating only particular foods. And it used to be thought that this was very different from bulimia nervosa, but in fact, bulimia nervosa, whilst it's very chaotic in terms of patients um, experiencing loss of control and eating a, a large amount of food in a small period of time, it is linked to anorexia nervosa because there's this desire to, to have a, a lower body weight, a body weight that they would perceive as being ideal and again linking a lot of emphasis on that particular number and in bulimia voza the the difference is that there's not that same stringent control there's this loss of control and that loss of control is very frightening and is followed up with compensatory behaviors such as purging you know including self-induced vomiting or taking laxatives and diuretics or um taking something like um Ipecac, which is a type of um, purgative, or even exercising and fasting as a way to compensate for those binges. So the illnesses have a lot of components in common, but there are core traits that are rather different. So in bulimia nivosa, we often see impulse control problems, whereas in anorexia nervosa, there's this desire to have very strong control over every aspect of life, including scholastic performance, not just their eating behaviour. So perfectionism seems to be something that's very core to the patients with anorexia nervosa. It's
0: a it's a fascinating area and obviously there's been a lot of research I would imagine over the last 20 years we're a lot closer to understanding it. Does their understanding help thread uh, to actual helping people with these these illnesses?
1: Well I think one of the main treatments for anorexia and bulimia has been quite consistent over the last 20 years around using cognitive behavioral therapy and understanding that some of the traits that we're talking about like perfectionism are not malleable because they are deeply held uh, traits which are really rather fixed but the CBT cognitive behavioral therapy treatments are around managing some of those thoughts and some of those worries and concerns and trying to understand how that magical thinking and dichotomous thinking that a food is good or bad or a day is a good day or a bad day depending on body weight that can be managed and it can be understood but I suppose an advance in the science has been around understanding the genetics of the eating disorders particularly the heritability of anorexia nervosa and another um, advance has been in brain imaging where it's shown that the ways in which patients with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa process food stimuli are rather different from the way in which a healthy weight individual without an eating disorder would process that information. So whilst the brain imaging and genetics has really helped us to understand the etiology, many of the treatments remain the same. I think the, the, the exception to that is that because we know more from brain imaging about the areas of the brain which are disrupted in the eating disorders, there's now some um, novel innovative. In terms of trying to treat uh, those brain areas directly. So, there's been some stimulation studies of um, uh, deep uh, brain stimulation to look at whether or not we can correct those disrupted brain functions. This kind of data is rather preliminary, but it's kind of based on the idea that deep brain stimulation has been very successful in treating illnesses such as uh, depression, chronic depression, and was originally looked at from the point of view of looking at motoric disorders, um, such as Parkinson's disease and other diseases. So there has been some success, although it's quite preliminary in using deep brain stimulation, but obviously that's really very invasive. So I think for those patients who've had severe enduring eating disorders, that might be a final option. Um, But certainly for um, eating disorders in adolescence, which is where it's most commonly found, CBT is very important. And when I worked at Johns Hopkins, we had our patients inpatient for up to 30 days, sometimes longer, depending on um, the treatment program. And that very immersive, very uh, intensive therapy could set the patients on a path to recovery. But very difficult to work with patients who might be a little bit resistant to the idea of gaining enough weight to reach um, a normal enough weight to start menstruating again, mm. uh, or to start to show normal hormone indicators, so really very difficult to treat the eating disorders. Very uh, poor success rate in in anorexia nervosa in particular.
0: Sure, I guess there's. Um there's probably more work to be done to gain greater understanding in that area because you've described it's quite multifaceted depending on you know the psychology and the brain and the biology there's a lot going on isn't there from your research you haven't just stayed with uh, eating disorders it's been quite expansive uh, across the lifespan uh, what has led you to um, look at different age groups and different type of eating behaviours rather than just go, oh, I'm just going to... Because you could spend your life's work on any one of the areas that you've looked at. What What's made you be so diverse?
1: Well, one thing that I um, discovered when we were working in the eating disorders is that, obviously, patients came to us already very ill. So by the point of, of admission to an inpatient hospital, such as Johns Hopkins, which has a specialist eating disorders program, or NIH, where I also worked on an eating disorders ward, by that stage, patients had often been very ill for maybe five to six years, and one of the things that was uncovered in therapy was that the seeds of the eating disorder had already occurred very early on, often in childhood. So my attention turned to childhood because that is where our eating habits develop. And what was very curious to me was that developmental psychologists spent a lot of time looking at child development from the point of view of cognitive function, cognitive performance, how children acquire language, and how they uh, remember certain words or certain um, behaviours or events. So learning and memory and language are all very well understood in developmental psychology terms. But eating behaviours had not really been uh, looked at very much by developmental psychologists. I would say that it was rather a Cinderella subject, it really had been neglected. And a pioneer in the eating uh, behaviour field was was Leanne Birch, um, who at the time was at the University of Illinois in Champaign, Urbana, and basically she had pioneered, she was a developmental psychologist who'd started to work in the area of looking at eating behaviors in early life. And what she was finding was that eating behaviors were really so important in early life that it was very hard to then change behaviors later on. So that was very interesting to me because I could see that in the patients that we were working with. Even though they were adolescents, 15, 16 years of age, they'd already had many, many years of struggling with their food and with um, the environment in which eating was taking place. So I was interested then in looking at early life and looking at where Um, eating problems might begin. And in order to understand eating problems, you really have to understand normal patterns of eating behaviour. And that um, turned my attention then to looking at um, uh, infancy. And at first I started to look at um, preschool children, trying to look at older children. We've recently done some work with adolescents but I've decided to give them a body swerve because they're so (laughs) difficult to work with. I'm going to stick with the the little kids. Again, with adolescents, one of the reasons, I don't mean to make fun of adolescents, but effectively adolescents are now at a point where they're more autonomous and they really want to practice their autonomy by by challenging what they know to be the ways in which their parents eat. So the way that eating behaviour occurs in adolescents is really very different and certainly very different, again, in patients with eating disorders. But in early life, um, children are very interesting because they're born with a nutritional wisdom. They know what to eat. They know how much to eat. They can regulate fairly well. But what parents tend to do is to superimpose upon their children um, some of their own desires for what the children should be eating. So our research is around breastfeeding and and looking at how breastfeeding occurs in terms of regulation of of eating behaviour. And then switching to complementary feeding and again looking at how babies respond to first foods, particularly foods like vegetables, which you know we understand are difficult for young children to eat because they tend to be quite bitter. They're not as tasty as sweet foods, which we are already hardwired to like because breast milk is, is sweet. And in primates in general, sweet taste is a signal of a safe source of calories. So we look at complementary feeding and we look at the ways in which infants respond to first foods and then switching on to looking at um, the family diet and understanding the ways in which children prefer certain foods over others through their exposure and their experience. So one of the things that's been really exciting for me is that although I trained as a primary school teacher, I have very rarely had to use my skills as a primary school teacher until recently because what we've been doing uh, in in, uh, collaboration with Funky Foods is we've been developing um, teaching materials for teachers in preschool settings to work with children on how to eat vegetables because really what we find is that if children aren't exposed to vegetables through breast milk and aren't exposed to foods uh, such as vegetables at complementary feeding. By the time they reach preschool, they're very resistant to eating new vegetables. And, um, you know, you hear people say, eat up your greens all the time because green vegetables are particularly disliked by small children, unless they've had that prior experience through breast milk, because breast milk tastes of the mother's diet. Um, and that can be a continuous experience of, of those flavours through lots of eat, eating lots of vegetables. But if they haven't had that exposure because they've been formula fed or they haven't had that exposure through complementary feeding, then children are very resistant to vegetables. So we've been using um, storybooks to excite children about um, vegetables like the celery act. So have, we have a book called The Knobbly, Wobbly, Bobbly Celery act. <laughs> And it's basically telling the story of um, the celery act who feels left out because it's not being eaten enough at the greengrocers. So it's really getting the children to learn about the celery act through the storybook then getting exposure to the, to the celeriac through sensory learning. So we give them a celery celeriac to tap and to play with because it's quite a, a tactile vegetable. It's pretty ugly looking. So the children can get to touch it and then to make comments about it. Then we peel it and we chop it up and let them taste it. And it's got quite a strong fragrance. It's, it's quite pungent. And then they taste the Celery Act. And, you know, after we build them up to the tasting, they're quite ready for that. They're quite curious. Children are like mini scientists. They, they love to find out about what's going on in the environment. But they have to be prepared for it. Because if you just set down something like spinach or a Celery Act for the first time, Children are quite neophobic. They're quite frightened of and, aware and wary of something that's new. And again, that has biological origins because in nature we might come across something that's green and leafy, but it might be toxic. So it's quite right to be a little bit curious and, and wary of something that, that's new. So we try to build them up through learning, through sensory learning, to the point where they can actually um, eat those vegetables.
0: That makes a lot of sense that uh, really you 've got to start at the beginning to foster this love of a wide diverse diet instead of perhaps the other end of political will when it 's too late and we 're trying to address obesity on a global scale and so you know you're trying to put taxes on stuff. It seems like common sense that we should perhaps be focusing more on on fostering that whole knowledge transfer of how to get your child's uh you know from even before they're born to accept vegetables it's very interesting that you you've gone back to the start and looking at that area and also using your your primary education <laughs> your your learning there what happened did you, when when did you decide that you weren't going to be a teacher
1: well when i was doing primary school training I enjoyed very much working with the children, but I felt that I was probably not suited uh, to being in a classroom because I simply didn't have the right level of patience and I I, I wasn't really ready to have that level of hard work. Um, I, I went to university at age 16 and I trained, uh, I did my four-year degree, so I was in teacher training when I was 20. And I think that at that point, I felt unready for the real world of of being in a classroom. Partly the responsibility for all these children. And partly, as I said, I didn't think I had the disposition to be patient enough with children. Whereas going to university and having the opportunity to work with students, I felt like I was ready for that because... I had I had a you didn't have to be so patient (laughs) Um, and they were learning in a way that was more manageable. It wasn't so demanding on you. So I think I was ready for for teaching within the university setting, maybe not so much with little children when I was age 20. Mm. But the other thing is that we've worked with children because, as I said earlier, they're very malleable and they're very curious And so I have worked with adults and with older adults, where it's very, very difficult to change eating habits after a lifetime of eating in a certain way. And that in itself is very interesting that, you know, little children are very malleable, but once they get to school, it's very hard to change their eating habits. And anybody who's done a school-based program to try to encourage children to eat more fruits and vegetables will know what an uphill struggle that is. It's really, really difficult. So... The thing that I wanted to say about what you were saying earlier in relation to early life exposure is that I think a lot of mothers don't realise that in pregnancy, what they're eating has an influence on the fetus. And I think they don't necessarily realise that what they're consuming in their diet, some of those chemicals from the, from the flavours, from the flavonoids, from the, the volatile components of the diet are actually reaching the fetus and that the fetus is being exposed through um, taste and smell because the, the fetus is able to swallow amniotic fluid and amniotic fluid will be flavoured by some components of the mother's diet. And really some of that beautiful research that has been done on on newborn babies is fascinating because you can't ask a newborn baby if they like one food or another food because they've not yet been exposed to breast milk. But what you can do is you can look at their response to smell by putting them in a, a, a support and then giving them breast pads on each side of their head and looking at which direction they orient towards a smell which is breast milk or a smell which is formula milk or a, bre- a breast milk pad that has garlic if the mother has eaten garlic in the diet or chilli. And these very elaborate studies that have been done uh, by Benoit Schall at, you know, at the University in Dijon, in Burgundy University in Dijon, um, what they found was that these babies who had been exposed to garlic, had been exposed to carrot flavour, had been exposed to chilli or caraway, they orient towards those those olfactory cues. Those smells are meaningful to those babies. So right in early life, they've already had exposure to some of these tastes and smells through um, swallowing amniotic fluid. Then breast milk comes along, which is very diverse in its flavour quality. It has all of these components from the maternal diet. And again, that gives the baby a very complex experience of flavour and smell. But formula milk, unfortunately, has no flavour. So it's very bland. It's slightly sweet. It's very bland. And those babies, therefore, don't get very much exposure to the complexities Of the mother's diet. So, our studies showed that if you add a little bit of vegetable to the formula milk, the babies are starting to get a little bit of an experience of vegetables. So, we had a randomized controlled trial where mothers added vegetables to breast milk or added vegetables to formula around about the time of complementary feeding around five to six months. And we found that those babies when they were given actual puree of vegetable were much more avidly eating the vegetable through being spoon-fed compared to babies who had had no experience of that vegetable either through breast milk or through formula milk. So when you invite mums to add a flavour to their milk, It's actually against the way in which the UK government prefers us to feed milk. It should be um, milk only. But around the time of complementary feeding, adding a little bit of vegetable to the milk that you're offering gives the babies that little bit extra intensity of flavour of vegetable. And that seems to promote their liking of vegetables later on. But if mums ate lots of vegetables in pregnancy, it would do the same job, which is to give the, the, the fetus exposure to some some of those volatile chemicals that come through the amniotic fluid. And I don't think that's well enough communicated to mothers that the diets that they have from the time of conception is really, really important. It's a window of opportunity to encourage healthier eating, in particular, lots of vegetables.
0: I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's really interesting, those those sort of studies. But the messaging is just not out there, is it? I mean, people know not to drink lots or smoke lots when they're either pregnant or whether they're lactating. But um, in terms of what people eat during that whole period, I, I, do, I just don't think that that's out there at all, is it? But in, in any in any particular format, it's not part of the process. And maybe that maybe that's what it needs. It needs to be part of that whole antenatal, prenatal care. Does it frustrate you <laughs> that you can see how things could be different? If, if them if if the messaging was different because you have that knowledge um do you, does it frustrate you not have not getting it out there?
1: It's not so much frustrating it's more that I think scientists need to do a better job of communicating with policymakers and I think we have an obligation to ensure that our research is disseminated. And one of the great things about the ref, for example, is as much as we might complain as academics about the research excellence framework. Um, one of the great things is that there 's a lot of uh, kudos given to universities about how we translate our research into infa- impact and into impactful outcomes and I think scientists are now doing a bit better job of of actually communicating how their research can be meaningful to policymakers and to even to food manufacturers, because one of the things that we found in our studies was that we wanted to add vegetable puree to the milks in our randomised control trial. But actually, we couldn't find pure vegetable purees in the UK because most um, baby foods are mixed with other vegetables so you might want to give a pure flavor of broccoli but you won't get it because it'll be broccoli and pear or broccoli and potato or broccoli and some other flavor so to do these experiments properly we had to have pure vegetable puree and we had to go to other countries to secure those baby foods wow so we have to communicate better yeah. we have to keep Better to policymakers. We have to communicate better to baby food manufacturers. And some manufacturers are listening um, about what mothers want because, and, and again, mothers don't necessarily uh, know that it's better to give a pure vegetable flavour if they want their kids to eat broccoli. Because if they eat broccoli with pear, or something sweet, then they're not actually getting the pure intense flavor of broccoli. And they're not learning, therefore, about that flavor. They're learning about that flavor paired with something sweet, which is really not ideal in terms of research. So whilst you asked me about frustration, I'm not frustrated at at, at these um, outcomes. I'm frustrated that we don't, as scientists, reach out enough because I think we are so blinkered to, you know, teaching into our own research agenda. We really need to be more outward looking and ensuring that our research is disseminated appropriately. And part of that um, is being encouraged through the REF. It's being encouraged through lots more grants, which are about application translation and not just about blue skies or about more theoretical aspects of science. Whilst they're so important, equally we have to look at more translatable evidence that goes out there to the public.
0: Yeah. So from what you're saying is it's about how the institution has been, or you know and not just your institution, but all academic institutions have operated in a certain way, and perhaps that needs to be slightly different. obviously, as you say, getting really good research and understanding is key but Perhaps it needs to be more valued as in the wider community for everyone to appreciate all your, all the hard work that's been, that's been done in, in academic institutions. It's good that it doesn't frustrate you. <laughs> do, are there things about the research process that do frustrate you or, or on the other end of the scale really excite you?
1: Well, what really excites me is um, the opportunity to try to combine some of the work that we're doing uh, as a trustee alongside interest in nutrition, because as you mentioned earlier, we work with Give a Child a Hope, which is an Ilkley-based charity here in Yorkshire, um, which works with the Revival Centre in Matuga in Uganda, and I've been lucky enough to go out there four times to visit Revival Centre to see how the charities work. Is improving the lives of, of young children there and the way that it does that is through education but one thing that I've been very very aware of is that children in Uganda have such a risk of stunting because they don't eat enough food relative to their requirements and of course children who are not eating enough can't learn anything they're not learning as much as they could they're not fulfilling their potential because many children are just not eating well enough. Now, when I say not well enough, stunting is in relation to not eating as much as you should eat in order to reach your full height potential. I'm not talking about wasting, which is very rare in Uganda, thankfully, but wasting is where... Children have malnutrition and they're starving over a chronic period of time. The children that we tend to work with have stunting, but they're also they're being fed, but they're not being fed a a very varied diet. And that's hidden hunger where there's a lack of micronutrients and there's insufficient micronutrients from a varied diet, such as green leafy vegetables and other sources um, of vitamins. So the diet in Uganda can be quite bland uh, with posh and beans. It's quite nutritious and energetic, but it's not really got the variety of micronutrients that you would need to ensure that children have a have a, a fully balanced diet. So what's exciting to me is being able to get funding, for example, through the GCRF funding, the Global Challenges Research Fund in the UK to encourage developing countries to receive funding in order to, to do research, which is really important to that that nation, in particular on nutrition. And at the moment with COVID-19, Uganda also has a lockdown. And what that has meant is that a lot of people are actually facing starvation. So um, I'm trying to combine some of my research interests in infant feeding with my interest as a trustee of Give a Child a Hope. And obviously the most important thing is that everyone is fed, not just fed vegetables and that kind of thing. But what we have found in Revival Centre is that the teachers have been very interested in having gardens, kitchen gardens, showing the children how to grow vegetables keeping some chickens, having eggs, et cetera, to supplement their diet. And in that way, we can combine education with nutrition. And if there's nothing else that I achieve in my lifetime, the one thing I want to achieve is that teachers understand the importance of nutrition so that the children can actually learn. Because there's such a, a gap between what we teach our teachers and what nutritionists teach their nutrition training. Uh, And we don't have that good correspondence between the two. We're very siloed. But because I did teacher training, I can see both sides of the story. Teachers are very involved with the scholastic performance of the children. They want the children to do the best they can in schoolwork. But they cannot do that with children who are hungry. And they cannot do that to the best of their ability if the children are not eating enough. So I would like there to be more overlap between nutrition and teaching. And what we find in Uganda is that there's a lot of interest in uh, uh, kitchen gardens and informal farming so that the children can learn about where their food comes from, but they can also supplement their diet. So it's not just learning, it's also actually improving their circumstances. So that's been very exciting for me. Um, We just need the funding. We have applied a few times and we'll keep on applying because it's so important.
0: For sure. You say you keep on applying, that suggests that you're not always successful. Is that because it's not hitting a particular requirement that the the funders are after? Because it sounds like a very worthy project to fund.
1: Well, we've uh, we've applied for about five to six research grants through GCRF and through the Gates Foundation, and there'll be different reasons for the funding Mm -hmm. not being awarded. Quite often it's that the ambition of our projects is so enormous. Uh, Because really what we want to do is cover lots of disciplines and those disciplines are agri-food, so farming, agriculture, food systems, food distribution, as well as nutrition, as well as education. So sometimes what is a a problem with our grants is that they're very expensive because they involve lots of different um, inputs. And the other things when they made them smaller scale is that they're maybe too small scale. And, uh, so one day I'm hoping to get research funding for this work and I won't give up because I th- as you say, it's worthy research, but it also has to really be from the people on the ground. And what we're hearing from people in Uganda right now is that the most important thing is to be fed
0: Mm. and
1: that's really political and that's really at the level of the nation rather than what we can do in small communities but really there's so much interest in listening and working in partnership because the ideas for what is a grand challenge or global challenge to that community will depend on the community so we have to listen And respond but it's really wonderful that we have research funds particularly set aside for this type of research so that's that's very exciting to have that pot of money which is protected specifically for the developing nations and you know for the low and middle income countries of which Uganda is certainly one.
0: What is curious about those particular projects and I think that gives it really good value is the fact that you are coming from more than just um, one angle. It's more than just education. It's it's the agri-food side. It's about the nutrition. I guess it's more valuable that it's done in that way in a in an area like Uganda. But I imagine that it is would be very very useful within our own communities as well in in the UK where that within a classroom it, it is. It is seeing where these foods are coming from. It is understanding what that, what value those foods have and how they are produced on mass scale. I think that is, it would be really, really useful to have all those, those angles on that learning of that particular subject rather than what a banana looks like or the different, you know, within our language. It's, it would be totally valuable to scale it up everywhere but I yeah I, I, I can understand your passion you've, you've you've infected me with your passion <laughs> um and it's good that uh, uh you're obviously resilient um that you just keep going with something that's important to you is that some is that a trait that's always been within you that you when you've decided upon something that, that you think is worthwhile you go for it Well, actually, I was inspired
1: to go to university by a comment, a throwaway comment that was made by uh, my dad's adoptive family. Um, So when I was 14, I was talking about possibly going to university. And um, this member of the family said, women don't go to university. Women aren't allowed to go to university. And I was very taken aback because nobody in my family had gone to university. We were very much a working class family. And I believed him because he was, you know, a grandfatherly figure of my father's adoptive family. And I I, I was very taken aback and went to the teachers and said, you know, I'd like to go to university. Is that possible? And they were like, "Yeah." And so I, I think I developed my resilience. I wasn't resilient necessarily. I was very taken in and naive by family members. Um, but it shocked me that some universities had only recently taken in women at that time. So that was quite, a, a, quite an eye opener. But they then I, I pursued the, the the goal of going to university. As I said, I managed to do that. And what you discover in academic life is you've just got to take the knocks because there are so many times that you've got a great idea for a grant. You you, you spend three months writing a grant and you get good uh, feedback, but it's still not uh, awarded. So, you know, we do have a, a very tough system in the UK. When I worked in the United States, one thing I liked about the NIH federal system is that you could... Keep applying with the same grant, so you would use the same feedback from the grant and and resubmit. And you had uh, three strikes before you were out. You know, you could you could reapply. In the UK, we don't have that, and I think that's a real waste of time for academics and for the grant awarding bodies. That might be a very good idea, great feedback. It's not funded on that time because there's not enough money to go around. But that they should be asked to 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 resubmit. It's very rare for resubmissions to be invited, and it really should be part. The system, uh, in order to you know, this is the taxpayer's money going into these academics spending all mm-hmm. that time putting these grants forward. So I think in some ways the UK system is is really very stringent and very tight and very difficult. And the NIH NIH system I think is a little bit fairer. At least that that was my experience of of working in that system.
0: You talk quite positively about your time over in the states. What um, led you to coming back rather than going? Oh, actually, it's rather nice out here. I'll I'll keep with this. <laughs> well,
1: um, after my post, I had two postdocs in the United States, one at Johns Hopkins, one at NIH, and I applied for lots of jobs in the United States mm. as acad- as an academic. However, my lack of teaching experience w- uh, was really a problem. Um, and certainly the, the uh, interview panels that I was uh, applying to would say that that was a shortcoming. Um, so when I applied to two jobs in the United Kingdom, I, I got interviews right away. And so the contrast with that was that in the UK they didn't mind so much that I didn't have that teaching experience. So, um, but anyway, it could have just been I wasn't good enough. When I was applying to the US, it's very competitive. You know, people have to have so many publications before they get a tenure track job. They also have to have evidence of some funding. And at that stage, I don't think I'd published that much, maybe nine or 10 papers, something like this. And maybe that just wasn't good enough. But certainly in the UK, I had a warm welcome back. And it was nice to come back. But um, what I found is that I really missed the type of camaraderie that we had in the United States. So that's why for me, having the affiliate professor uh, position at Penn State is wonderful. So all through lockdown, I've been attending the Penn State lab meetings, I I usually go there in person and I'm able to work with PhD students that I'm on the committees for. But because of lockdown, we've just done it all remotely. And so in some ways I felt more connected to my Penn State um, lab than I have uh, in previous years because I've been able to do so much um, using remote systems. And it's just been wonderful. And the way that the time differences is just as all my UK work is finishing, the US friends are up and awake <laughs> and starting to email. Always and someone questions. to talk to. <laughs> it's always someone to talk to. Absolutely. Which is one of the great things about this academic life.
0: You have been at a number of different institutions and it's clear from what you've just said that uh, you collaborate in lots of different ways. How valuable has that been to you to, to be in different places and get with new teams and collaborate with different people in different countries? Well, it's
1: interesting because I have worked in a number of different
0: institutions. So I've got good experience
1: of the so called new university sector as well as uh, the Russell Group uh, universities. But what I would say is that um, I feel like I've done the same job for 30 years. You know, I feel that there's a seamless track through my uh, career, other than my maternity leaves. Um, But I feel like I've been doing the exact same job for 30 years, which I've just really loved. And being in the different institutions hasn't made that much of a difference other than it's been really delightful for me to have colleagues that are Uh, looking up to me, as it were, over the years um, as a mentor. So I've really enjoyed mentoring others. But as I said earlier, I maintain my own mentor in Barbara Rolls. You know, she's still working as my mentor and and she's still in charge of a lab at Penn State. And that's really been fantastic for me to have a, a, a woman professor who's um, you know who's been so supportive over these many different jobs that I've had uh, including uh, my current job at Leeds so it's been really to me it's been a single scene but what has differed is the sort of interest in early life later life and working on what I think are problems that we need to solve so my research has always been applied including my work with older adults which is around loss of appetite in older adults so they have true anorexia which is this which is kind of paradoxical we call anorexia nervosa anorexia which is loss of appetite patients with anorexia nervosa have not lost their appetite they just don't want to eat Whereas with older adults, they genuinely don't feel hungry, they genuinely don't feel thirsty, and that's because the physiological systems, homeostatic systems involved in those um, uh, um, biological survival mechanisms, are impaired as we get older. So it's very interesting for me to work with older adults because it's a problem that they're not eating
0: enough. And when does that kick in? When does that lack of? And is it a slow, gradual lack of loss of appetite? Is it different for genders? I'm curious. Well,
1: I, I don't think there's any particular specific age, because as we know, ageing is such a, a fluid thing. You know, uh, we, we have so many people who are proving that you can work into your 80s and 90s. And I like to show slides of that in my talks with my students. You know, so I I use the example of Dave Brubeck, who's a jazz pianist, and he was still performing at the age of 90. Um, And, you know, Clint Eastwood is still directing movies in his late 80s. You know, this is this is happening. So the, the rate at which people are aging is subject to individual differences, depending on how active they are in their lives and how healthy they've been. So loss of appetite um, might happen at very different ages and stages in in older life and we think of older adults in, in different ways. So we have the oldest old that I've just mentioned in the 80s plus, we have the young old and we have the old old. So we have the oldest old, the old old and the young old and the young old would be around 65 plus. But these numbers are meaningless in some ways because people are still you know running marathons in the at the age of 65 so, so and yet some people are in care homes at 65 so it really is very individual but loss of appetite is something that we see alongside loss of taste and smell and we also see this kind of uh, dehydration because people don't remember to drink or they don't feel thirsty and these are impairments which can be assessed screened and we can do something to intervene um but it's but it really means that professionals have to be super vigilant around hydration and around appetite and care homes record everything nurse nursing homes record everything that's been eaten and and, and, and consumed I, I know this because my son and my daughter both in care homes over COVID-19 they were they lost their jobs and they went into care homes. So I know about all of that. So it's been really interesting to hear from them what the experience of older adults has been during lockdown. Um, and we really need to be very vigilant to make sure that older adults are eating enough and that they're drinking enough water to be hydrated.
0: I've just looked at the time, Marin, and I can't believe we've almost spoken for an hour. And there's no good place to stop because you've got so much interesting material. Your, your life and your research is... Really, really interesting. But I am going to call it to a close. Before I do, though, when you look back, is there a period or a specific, is there something that stands out in your career that you thought, wow, I didn't know I was going to do that and I'm really proud of it? Or, or a person, because you talk about um, your mentor, Barbara. What what stands out for you when you look back?
1: I think what stands out for me is when I worked at NIH, we worked on a, an eating disorders ward, as I mentioned earlier. And one thing that was... I'm very very proud of is being able to use my psychology in the most traditional way, which is phenomenology to be able to characterize a behavior and the behavior that we wanted to characterize NIH was binge eating, which is very secretive behavior normally. And what we did in NIH was we were studying the um, metabolic rates of, of patients with bulimia when they were still binging and purging. And then when they started their treatment program, when they were absent from binging and purging. And what we were able to do at the NIH, because it was, it was such an exciting place to do research, was we got um, ethics approval to work with patients with bulimia and allow them to binge and purge on the ward so that we could understand this behaviour better, this very shameful, very secretive behaviour that people are very guilty about. And what I'm proudest of is that we got the permission to look at the sorts of foods that the the women were eating and the prompts for their purging to understand this behaviour, which is so usually so undercover. We were able to look at that in in a very elaborate way. We were able to look at the foods, look at the feelings. So looking at and then looking at metabolic rate. So we were able to look at the biology of what binging and purging was doing, raising metabolic rate as well as looking at the behaviour in a lot of detail phenomenologically, but also looking at the psychological aspects of that, the feelings of guilt, the feelings of anxiety around binging and what prompted it, which was quite often these long periods of not eating anything at all. And because it was done in an inpatient supportive ward, the patients were safe. They were being observed 24 hours a day. So it was done in a very um, supportive manner. Um, I'm not sure we'd get ethics approval to do that anymore these days, but um, patients were very safe and they learned a lot about themselves in disclosing um, what they were eating and we were providing the food. So it was really important for me on my journey in academic life.
0: Yeah, a really interesting experience. As you say, it might not now be replicated, uh, but they could do that. Yeah, you've got a real insight from a lot of different angles. Thank you so much, Marion. I've nearly expired your breath. <laughs> um, so thanks for coming on the podcast, and I'm sure we'll speak again. Thank you for having me, Caroline. I really enjoyed it. Many thanks to Marion for giving us a glimpse into her world. Thanks also to Jeremy Jones for providing the music and to you, the listener. I hope you enjoyed it, and if so, please do leave a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Don't forget there are also six other episodes from series one to listen to and stimulate your mind. Next time, Professor Katie Slocum joins me on the podcast to chat about her research in comparative psychology. Do join me then. Bye for now.